Network. If Medium Cool was a documentary of today, Network is a documentary of today that was meant to be a satire or black comedy, but it fell into that uncanny valley where it was what everything was progressing towards. Check out the trailer and tell me I'm wrong. And now, the distinguished television news commentator, Mr. Howard Beale. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like at this moment to announce that I will be retiring from this program in two weeks' time because of poor ratings. Since this show was the only thing I had going for me in my life, I have decided to kill myself. I'm going to blow my brains out right on this program a week from today. What the hell's going on? Prepare yourself for a perfectly outrageous motion picture. Howard Beale went up there last night and said what every American feels, that he's tired of all the bull... sakes, Diana, we're talking about putting a manifestly irresponsible man on national television. I am not putting Howard back on the air. It's not your show anymore, Max. It's mine. I got a feeling I'm being made. You are. I got to warn you, I, I don't do anything on my first date. We'll see. I want a show developed based on the activities of a terrorist group. Well, Ahmed, I want to make a TV star out of you. Just like Archie Bunker. We're the number one show in television! We're number one! We're number one! There is no America. There is no democracy. There is only IBM and DuPont and Exxon. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Am I getting through to you, Mr. Beale? Why me? It was your own television, dummy. Ladies and gentlemen, the Network News Hour with Howard Beale. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Things have got to change. How many stations first, does this go out? You've got to get mad. You've got to say... I want you to get up right now. Go to your windows, stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Are they yelling in Atlanta, Herb? Are they yelling in Atlanta, Ted? Network by Patty Chayefsky, directed by Sidney Lumet, produced by Howard Gottfried. Television will never be the same. Hi, everyone. Mark D. here, IT guy, dad. And it's a depressive fucking episode with these two movies, man. Fuck. I had heard of Network spoken of in reverence, so I just decided to pick it up a while back. Finally got around to watching it since I just did medium cool and I wasn't ready. This is a good movie though, honestly. The performances are on the money and the screenplay works on several levels. By the numbers, Network was released November 27th, 1976 on an estimated 3.8 million budget. It, um, shit. Set my speed. 
a little lower. By the numbers, Network was released November 27th, 1976. On an estimated $3.8 million budget, it pulled in $23.6 million, which isn't anything to shake a stick at for its 121-minute runtime. It's holding a serious 8.1 on IMDb, a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes, and an 83 on Metacritic. Looking at Letterboxd, where you can find me, at MarkD20, it's holding on to a 4.2, which is good. There was a review on Letterboxd, and as a disclaimer, I got into Letterboxd with full earnestness, as I do most things, and simply did not understand the assignment. And for those who aren't familiar with Letterboxd, uh, is, it is the social media home for where you post the snarkiest comments on a movie. Uh, to call them a review would not be doing reviews justice. Anyway, there's a guy on here who posted on Network, and it looks like his username is Sam Van Halgren, who is also the co-founder of the Film Spotting podcast, which I've never listened to, but looks like a it's a full-on production machine. Sam says, quote, For the longest time, the 70s felt like the decade we escaped. Now it feels like the last chance we had to save ourselves. End quote. This resonates with me in so many ways. But back to network, it got several Oscar nods and it took the Golden Guy home four times. Two were groundbreaking. The first groundbreaking Oscar was for Best Actor in a Leading Role. That was given to Australian actor Peter Finch uh, posthumously. Uh, pos posthumously? Posthumously. After he died, he passed away shortly after the release of the film. This was the first time an Oscar was awarded posthumously. The second controversial award was for Best Actress in a Supporting Role, and that went to Beatrice Strait, who knocks it right out of the fucking park in the five minutes that she's in this movie. She, I believe, still holds the record for the Academy Award winner with the least amount of screen time in a part. And that's that. Ned Beatty was nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role, and he didn't have much more screen time, if any at all, but still brought home a powerhouse performance with his one day of work. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the other two awards a little later on. I didn't really talk about the soundtrack for Medium Cool, so I'll make sure to touch on the soundtrack for Network here. The soundtrack for this movie... I don't know that it exists. I can't think of one scene with music. The sound recording is no nonsense. It isn't fancy. It isn't extreme. It's just right. And the dialogue doesn't take a whole lot of time fucking around either. The character of Max Schumacher comes up with the death hour concept in the second scene of the film. The aural atmosphere, however, is, is people talking, papers getting pushed, the activity of a newsroom or the stillness of a private residence. Sometimes it's the thundering rain. Sometimes it's the people yelling out of their windows. But it all seems anchored in r this realism. The papers in Howard's hands rustle as he walks to his post at the news desk. When the doors open... They unshroud the audible chaos within. It's a whole mood. I dig it. 
clever sound design in this one, Foley work and the mixing and all that. I'm sure, I'm certain it goes unnoticed more often than not, but that is its genius. If you notice it, it's a problem. There is quite a bit to talk about in terms of the technical aspects of filmmaking in this movie. There are a million infinite choices happening at all times, but there are visual motifs going on. The uh, depth of a lot of shots reveal layers of the people involved. They involve paths and guides for walking and talking. There's an energy to the visuals and their accompanying dialogue that in our day we would call Sorkin-esque. The performances, even the unnamed bit parts, are solid. Award-winning in several cases, as I've already shown. I'd say that uh, Suits, the popular lawyer show, might have also taken some pointers on shooting in a New York office. The vistas are impressive, and they seem legitimate more than matte paintings. If they were mats, well, they were great. Uh, the camera pans and pushes when it's correct, stationary when it should be. The right amount of stillness and motion. A lot of the times the motion is a subtle lead-in for the next cut. The motion of the camera implies where the next cut will take place in physical space. Faye Dunaway executes what might be one of the best walking while reading a newspaper shots ever. And it's, it's a nothing shot to get from point A to point B, but it is, it is really good. The dialogue surrounding Faye Dunaway's character, Diana, is probably the most Sorkin-esque of the bunch. And again, it is good. I'm going to assume that you, listener, are like me and are generally unfamiliar with the times and subsequently the players. So I'll fill you in on some things as we go, but uh, this will inform the order of operations. We need to start somewhere, and that somewhere is the, the well or the font of uh, Patty Chayefsky. There's a lot to unpack here, but the short version is that he was born to a Russian-Jewish immigrant family in the Bronx. He is, as the story I've heard told says, uh, he, was, he was wounded in World War II by unknowingly taking a shit on a landmine. He found some measure of success in television, but really hit it big with his teleplay, Marty. Marty ended up being turned into a 1955 movie starring Ernest Borgnine, which, if you're curious, is free on YouTube. I started watching it, and I don't dislike it. I'll go out on a limb here and say that Marty was influential to Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale in writing Back to the Future, but this is a claim that I have completely yet to research. It just feels like it is. Marty has importance, is set in 1955, and could have easily been a model for how to shoot in 1955 to a certain extent. Chayefsky was an accomplished playwright and television writer at that point who was able to transition into film. One might project onto Chayefsky the depression and potential anxiety of the gifted child, and it seems like maybe that held true. He came back out of a slump with a movie called The Hospital, which is almost documentarian in nature. A lot of notes were left on the writing of Network by Chayefsky, and you can and should look into them because there's uh, a lot to them in terms of the craft and, and the story. But to get down to brass tacks... He, he genuinely believed that this is what was going on in media. This was the trajectory of television which desensitized the populace, in his point of view. He works on this screenplay and shapes it. 
it goes down some dead ends, but it ends up where we know it now to be, a, a biting and Academy Award-winning satire of TV that could never happen, not in a million years. Except it did happen to us. But, but this is also where Chayefsky really shines. There's layers. There's a constant metatextual layer. He outlines his love story plot like a TV script, which he adheres to. It is what it is, you know. The mad prophet who is completely full of shit and probably experienced some type of mental break tells the truth in earnestness and with honesty. And he fucks with the money, which is the beginning of his downfall. The TV executives stay TV executives at the cost of everyone else. We get the voice of God telling us that this isn't okay. It, it, it's really good. This is a really good screenplay. I guess I can give you a summary of the movie at this point. Harold Beale, an old school newsman, goes on a downturn and gets fired for having bad ratings. They let him know ahead of time, so he says on air that he will kill himself at the end of his last show. Also on air. They put him on the next day, right, to air an apology, and he says that he, he just ran out of bullshit. Life is bullshit. Meanwhile, in the background, the network UBS had been acquired by a media conglomerate, CAA, and an ambitious young woman named Diana Christensen is on the hunt for the next hit. She sees Harold Beale's bullshit speech and just latches on. Max Schumacher, Harold's old newsman friend and director of News Division, butts heads with Diana as she tries to take over his show and falls in love with Diana after he's fired. Harold goes on a downward spiral of psychosis. The ratings eventually fall, and to extricate themselves from the situation they've created, Diana and the other executives still at the network execute a plan that results in Howard being killed live on the air. It's dark. It's, it, this is a dark movie. It's got laughs, but I think what it does is ultimately pick apart at the hypocrisy and the pretense of the business and its face. We see inside the executive meetings, they are uncaring and maybe even contemptuous when it comes to their audience and talent. That's what Patty thought of the industry, I'm sure, but he, he turns it up some. Sidney Lumet buys in. Director Sidney Lumet, he knows the score and he knows how Patty wants to do the thing. You've definitely heard the name Sidney Lumet if you consume movie media of any type, but in 2023, his influence has been waning. Sure, he was the director of Dog Day Afternoon and Serpico, but a lot of his filmography rings no bells for me. What Lumet had to really make this movie go was a long career in television, honestly. His claim to fame, ostensibly, is 12 Angry Men, which I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with. Uh, I actually helped build the set for the stage production in high school, so that's how I know about it. So not only does Lumet have experience in the industry to help portray and project the author's vision or screenwriter's vision, right? But he also has made some hits out of some chatty fucking movies. Stage play adaptations were not uncommon in the middle of the century, as you know, from previously talking about Marty. So this movie ends up being a bit more dynamic, but still very talky stage play. 
It even comes back as a stage play in 2018 with The American Run starring Brian Cranston and Tatiana Maslany. Did I mention this already? Uh, maybe. Maybe not. Uh, but it's a mood. It's a vibe. Helping to bring the vibe alive is cinematographer Owen Roisman. The camera in Network is alive when it needs to be and quite dead at other times. And it's powerful. There's a lot of depth uh, in some of the shots. The ecumenical Liberation Army's hideout is just a smorgasbord of depth. There are also documentarian shots. There are narrative drama shots. And there are TV shots, like filmed on TV, and they're all intentional. The boardroom with Arthur Jensen, the whole thing feels like a work of art. The intentionality with which Harold Beale leaves the confines of his studio desk and gives us that taste of, of cinema verite, that, that there's a world out there bringing us this world, it legitimizes. There is a tremendous cast of characters that brings the screenplay to life. Peter Finch is our Harold Beale, and he brings, well... I don't know if you've heard this or noticed this, but sometimes the more you lean into a character the more people are like, oh yeah, I know that person in my life. Well, Harold Beale is kind of the most newsman. And the, the reason I say this is because of his accent. Uh, Peter Finch was Australian. He quickly learned the accent from tapes sent to him by Lumet. And his accent, it's being a second level manufactured accent since the mid-Atlantic accent was already a manufactured one for film and television. Well, it just made me buy in even more. But he plays the mania and despair incredibly well. I'm sorry, I won't do that again. I'd seen William Holden in Sunset Boulevard, but he'd aged into a craggy old newsman like if he was born for this part. Holden's Max Schumacher holds all the gravitas of someone who has risen with the giants themselves to the mountaintop or, you know, I don't know, the, the, the Olympus of news reading or whatever. Faye Dunaway is a repeat offender on this podcast, and you can hear more about her on the episode for Chinatown. But she knocks this performance right out the fucking park, man. Her portrayal of Diana Christensen has the crazy eyes in her moments of mania, as well as a sultry sensuality that sexualizes all across the screen, but in a pretty clever way. Robert Duvall, the CAA executive Frank Hackett, is the hatchet man there to make cuts to the network. But this performance is such a departure from his career in The Godfathers 1 and 2. I had to check to see that The Godfather 2 was only a couple years before this because he's completely changed and has been unchained as an actor. Gone is the understated and present is the emotive mania that you'll see from him in something like Gone in 60 Seconds, also another episode of this podcast. Ned Beatty and Beatrice Strait were the major supporting roles, and they both bring 100% with the one day or whatever that they worked. Just really fucking solid performances that were well-written. Ned Beatty is a super-rich media mogul. Arthur Jensen has a speech where he basically yells at Harold Beale, and it's something to behold. Chayefsky takes this opportunity to call back to the earlier scene where Harold is visited by a disembodied voice of God. And I'd like to think that Arthur Jensen has no clue whatsoever that Harold had mentioned this on air 
and he's just going off his own dome. Because while Harold had imagined a voice of God, Arthur Jensen's voice is the voice of God, and that God is money. So there are characters and plot lines that I'm leaving out as always because an exhaustive encyclopedic examination would be exhausting. But there are some things that I want to touch on. Not too many. Maybe just one or two or whatever. But uh, I'll get into those. So Diana Christensen is, is fixated on angry shows and how America wants them. She sent a political terrorist organization's film of a bank robbery, or she receives it, I should say, and develops an entire show based around it. Contact starts with a woman from the more generic Communist Party to make roads with the Ecumenical Liberation Society, and this woman, Lorene Hobbs, played by Marlene Warfield, falls into the trap of show business itself in the pursuit of gaining audience share to preach her political views. A diehard political activist is taken completely by show business contracts and the trappings of profits and syndication deals. Lorene's initial argument was about control of the political content of the show, and Diana quickly says that she does not care at all about the political content. It's about getting something, some type of anger or misery that the public will latch on to. Similarly, Howard Beale thinks that he's going to be a modern-day prophet exposing the hypocrisies of the world, and he even talks about how the network can push any form of truth or fact, which they're doing right at that second is the irony. And then he runs afoul of this once he hits the network in the money bag, so to speak. That's when he wins the personal audience with, and the amazing speech from, mogul Arthur Jensen. Arthur posits that there is no democracy and no America, that there are no nations. It's all just money. Howard is akin to Loreen in that they are both being used to further something else, something primal, something insidious. We've seen this now. What seemed like impossible satire to the moving-going public in 1976, what seemed like the trend line to the screenwriter and director. Well, we've lived it. Shock and outrage driving viewership, but also driving discourse. All the while, this alien organism lives within the bowels of our media, slurping our attention right out of our brains. There's an argument that They Live could be a sequel to Network, and I'd be okay with that. There's an argument that both H.P. Lovecraft and Stephen King have strong ties to Network. Stephen King is pretty easy when you consider uh, stories like The Long Walk and The Running Man. But Lovecraft would be one of those sneakier old ones who has just camped out in the basement of a studio building in Manhattan, constantly receiving beautiful young talent to be sacrificed to feed its greed. Maybe the better analogy would be It from the Stephen King book, It. Something that has just been there for eons, just under the surface. Not only that, but then the idea that a network, or in this case an acquiring corporation, can wage war on a person. Uh, Patty Chayefsky had a a plot in the notes he had on writing this movie, where the networks declare war on Chile, the country, 
And you might think that this is a Stevensonian snow crash feature, but it looks like maybe we're heading there. Uh, Chayefsky and Stevenson, they can have similar vibes. It's allowed. The conceit is that the network would literally kill for ratings. I'm sure this type of talk is normal in the business, but in this generational clash where all old newsmen have integrity and all young women are sociopaths while that old newsman has an affair with them, we're, we are still living in a post-Spanish-American war where yellow journalism ostensibly turned an accidental magazine explosion into a declaration of war. Imagine if some ambitious and intrepid reporter set up the explosion themselves. Uncovering such a conspiracy would definitely lead to a few juicy headlines. I'll just point out that uh, Nightcrawler, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, applies here too. It is a cynical outlook, certainly, and taking it to the next level is fun, but equally cynical. But we know that the level exists at this point, and that is difficult to overlook. To ignore it would be naive. It's a lot to think about. What this movie doesn't think about is the potential good coming out of what we might call new media. The rise of animation as an art form was not a thing in this movie. Chayefsky and Lumet were completely unconcerned. And I'm talking here about, about the mainstays, the 90s that had Batman, the animated series, and Animaniacs. Not the consumer-first stuff like Transformers. There was plenty of that too, but when Japanese animation and culture started getting imported, that was another big milestone. Cowboy Bebop could easily be a show that dads would watch if they could get over the Max Schumacher-esque idea that cartoons were for idiot kids. There is an extreme cynicism in the future here. It is impossible to say that this movie, that the viewpoints of these creators, is wrong because they fucking nailed it. But their view was very narrow, and they didn't allow for anything good. And to be fair to the movie, nothing good came from the news. Not a damn thing. This is before the 24-hour news cycle. This is before a lot of bullshit. I think that there is also a case to be made that the future ended up worse than what the movie thought. I guess I was trying to see a positive. This is before the idea of democratizing or just making accessible the means of producing a broadcast. Only those incorruptible, respected men in their Rockefeller towers were able to broadcast, but for better or worse, we live in different times. YouTube and Twitch and just technology getting better has changed so many things. There are random streamers and YouTubers that have better production quality than anything nonfiction on TV 30 years ago, never mind 50 years ago, or however many years we are from network, you know? We're in a reality that is simultaneously exactly what they thought, even if it might have been a self-fulfilling prophecy, but so alien that it could not have been conceived of. And maybe that's the bright spot. We are, are so fucked, it could not have been imagined that long ago. I can't imagine where we'll be in 50 years, but I'm also doing radio on the internet in that same way. Any asshole can have a podcast. And maybe that's okay. I found plenty that I listen to that are great. They wouldn't have made it on terrestrial radio at all. Language and general appeal would prevent it. But they found their niche, and they are very successful. I've been 
waiting eight months for the follow-up to a six-hour video about a Japanese game about a boy's summer vacation, which was itself a kickoff from a 10-hour video about Cyberpunk 2077. And I'm here for it, 100%. That would not show up on TV. Advertisers would flee in droves. They would pay to not be on that. But I was, and I will be again, a patron of this creator once I figure out my Patreon memberships because I'm a mess. But these are the more traditional of mediums. Something like a, a TikTok duet is a beautiful yet alien concept, building on a video that someone else did. It's, it's wonderful. But that's just me, and that's just us, and it's just now in 2023. And that's not even getting into the expected gender norms and the idea of the normal romantic relationship presented by this movie. But what, what, what is the end result? This movie slaps. It's really fucking good. It's been influential. Sorkin, I, I believe, name-checked this movie specifically at one point. And he's, he's one of our auteurs du jour, uh, just because I wanted to double down on French terms. He's not a fad, though. That's not what I meant. He is, however, of our time, and I think that the West Wing and the social network and the newsroom will really timestamp him. But this movie is good. It's got layers. It works. The production is, is unified, totally. Top to bottom, the costuming, the makeup, the set design, the sound, everything. This is a very well-executed movie, and it stands the test of time. I think it earned everything it won. You should check it out. I'm reading this to you from a teleprompter. If you don't believe me, look at the screenshot. Look, look at the picture I posted uh, on on the the episode website at uh, scumbags.com. S e u m m b a g s. Yeah, it it was influential, and this is part two of my TV trilogy. I will have a part three coming up, and part three is really fucked up and there will be content warnings on that one because it gets weird thanks be good